Over the past few weeks, I've had uh, many sleepless nights tossing and turning, and one passage uh, continually comes back to me, um, and I'd like to comment on that passage this morning, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So turn with me in your Bibles or in the back of your bulletins to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Notice what he says in verse Two, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God, that pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire where Israel just got a glimpse. That which filled the temple. That which shone out from the angels singing glory to God and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We only get glimpses, but the day will come when we will fully be in the presence of Christ Jesus. His glory is that Beyond that, anything we can imagine. The immense beauty and peace and awe and fear of that moment cannot even be borne by us today. In these fallen bodies, just a glimpse of that glory would drive us to madness and despair. For such a sight is only fit for glorified bodies, free from sin and death. In the book of Revelation, John got a glimpse of that glory and fell down as a dead man until he was lifted up to his feet by the Holy Spirit. For we know from the scripture right now there's a curtain covering the world. We can only read the descriptions. We can't see beyond it. We can't even fully fathom it. It's that curtain that was drawn back when the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. That curtain was drawn back on the Mount of Transfiguration. There is something so immense and beautiful and perfect and full of awe that we can't even fully fathom it with these eyes. And so it's hidden from us. All we can do is long for it. There is perfect justice that is beautiful and immense. There is perfect goodness that makes the eyes water and shuts the mouth. There is perfect beauty that renders us helpless before it. There's a love that leaves us crumpled and weeping. Similar to a groom seeing his bride walk down the aisle the first time. But even more so. 
And every glimpse we get of these things on this earth just reminds us that it's not perfect, it's not complete. It all leaves us longing and gasping for more. They're simply the tiny bites, the appetizer, the amuse before the full meal comes in advance of the supper, the glimpse of the things that are coming. Israel got a glimpse in the pillar of cloud and fire. Peter and James and John got a glimpse at the Mount of Transfiguration. But that glory isn't here yet. It's proclaimed. Paul said, if we had it now, what would we hope? We hope for the glory of God. And it is so hard to see it. Sometimes it's hard to believe the words when all we see around us is the ugliness of crime, violence, revilings, mocking, banishment, exile, ridicule. The Romans knew what this was. So Paul writes this epistle to the Romans to tell them he's eager to come and preach the gospel to them so that they might be encouraged, strengthened, empowered for the life that God calls them to, even while the world is raging. He talks about that power in chapter 1. But first, he describes the world of the Gentiles. Chapter 1 comes up a lot in Reformed circles. Especially when you talk about the sins of the world, the sins of the worldview of the unbelievers. They know God in their hearts, but they refuse to acknowledge him as God. They refuse to give him thanks as creator. And so God gives them over to a reprobate mind. To practice every kind of lawlessness. Whenever you have a, discuss, a discussion about the lawlessness, the fornication, the sexual sins of the world, Romans 1 is sure to come up. It was the state of the world in the days of Rome. It's the state of the world ever since. We know that. We understand that. It is so easy for a pastor to stand up and fill sermon after sermon after sermon with Romans 1 denouncements of the sins of the world. There's a time for that when you're calling people to repentance. But how often do we forget that Romans 1 flows into Romans 2? And Romans 2 starts with Who are you to judge another when you practice the same things? Now he turns to the people of God. If you're going to sit in judgment over the adultery and homosexuality and rebellion and idolatry of the world, then you're going to have to deal honestly with your own heart of adultery, rebellion, worship of money and power. The thoughts in your heart that flow night after night. In modern terms, when you condemn the fornication of those others and then turn on the pornography of your computer, you have simply condemned yourself. It is not those who can pass theology exams, Paul goes on to say, who can stand before God. It's those who are righteous. It's not the hearers of the law that are justified. It's the doers of the law. And we need to think very seriously about that because when we understand that it's the doers of the law alone who are righteous, all of us are out. But we still fall into that trap of thinking because that we don't commit the sins of the others, that we're somehow righteous before God because we're a little bit better than they are. Somehow that righteousness that we do makes us more acceptable to God than the other guy. It's the sin of Cain against Abel. We find ourselves like Cain saying, I thank God I'm not like Abel. 
The Pharisee is saying, I thank God I'm not like this tax collector. Or even in our own hearts as we go home and we say, well, I thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. And on and on it goes. And Paul sums it all up by saying, there is none who does good. No, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I memorized that verse when I was a child, but it was only while I was studying these first five chapters again that I connected that phrase with the hope of the glory of God by justification by faith, which is Paul's point. If you want the hope of the glory of God, you're not getting it through the works of the law. And you expose what you trust in by how you condemn others. And so Paul in chapter 3, the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, points us to a righteousness that isn't our own. It's a free gift. It's received by faith alone. We don't earn it. We don't make ourselves pure enough to receive it. And Paul's whole point is you can't denounce the world in Romans 1 without denouncing yourself in Romans 2 and 3. That's the whole point. And so he goes on to chapter 4 to describe this alien righteousness. The righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. The righteousness of another. That isn't ours. It's the only righteousness that will ever stand before God because it must be perfect throughout and wholly conformable to the divine will. And all the righteousness we have in this life is tainted with sin. It's righteousness which is a gift. The imputation of Christ's righteousness put on our account, his perfect life, his sinless thoughts, his purity, his beauty, everything about him, the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. Imagine that perfect beauty as a garment that's put on you after you've been washed clean from your sin by the blood of Christ. He's given us the sacrament of baptism so we can imagine the clean, cool water pouring over us, washing away all of our filth, all of our guilt, all of our inborn and actual sins. And then giving us his perfect righteousness. A garment that not even the pickiest critic can find a wrinkle in. And God did that for us when we were filthy, lepers, outcasts, unclean, prisoners, without hope, without God in the world. And so when you're lying awake in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, remember this, having been justified by faith, you have peace with God. Peace with God. We have peace with God that can never diminish, never be taken away, never be broken. Why? Because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on the perfect work of Jesus, his garment put on me, having been justified by faith. The devil accuses. Look at you. Look at those sins you still struggle with. You're a failure. You're ridiculous. Everybody hates you. They're barely tolerating you. 
They can't wait for you to be gone. If they only knew what kind of a person you really would, they'd have nothing, you really were, they'd have nothing to do with you anymore. That keeps us in bondage. There's a song I love by Andrew Peterson, and he says in that song, I'm scared if I open myself to be known, I'll be seen and despised and be left all alone. So I'm stuck in this tomb and you won't move the stone and the rain keeps falling. And so for all of, us who are, all of those who are afraid to be known, for all who hear that God would never accept a person like you, for all who are afraid to speak, to open yourself up wide, know this, the tomb is dark and scary, but it feels safe. Because inside that tomb, there's a lot of people just like you. But it's still a tomb. The gospel opens the tomb. And opening yourself up to be known by God is terrifying because all you've heard your whole life is that God hates people like you. But peace with God isn't going to come from being a different sort of person. How can you do that? Peace with God isn't going to come by hiding. Peace with God only comes one way. Being justified by faith. Standing before God and saying, Jesus, clothe me with your righteousness. Take away the condemnation and the shame of sin. Work in me by your spirit. I want to be clean. I want to be free. I want to be whole. And when you do that, the people in the tomb will hate you. They'll revile you. They'll separate from you because you're no longer their kind of people. But you will be free. And far, far better than even being free is being justified by faith. Declared righteous by God. The voice to Jesus comes to you. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 4. This is an important passage, and Paul is sometimes very difficult to get through. You have to parse a lot of words. But Romans 4, beginning at verse 16, he says, Therefore it, that is the blessing, the justification of God, is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. But follow what he's saying so far. He's saying the promise is absolutely sure because it's by, by faith, by grace. It's not according to works. Therefore, it's sure. Not only, to those who, not only to those who are of the law, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, the others, the outsiders. And then he says, this faith, Abraham is called the father of us all. And then he says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. The rest of his argument depends on this line. I have made you a father of many nations. When God changed Abram's name to Abraham, Abraham means exalted father. And he said, I have made you a father of many nations. When God did that, Abraham had no children. He was 90 years old. Sarah's body was dead. And it says, but Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. So Paul says, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. 
and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And the reason for this is because God gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. He calls us righteous as if we were. And then we are righteous. Because God's word gives life to the dead. Abraham was considered righteous by God so that he stood in God's presence because Abraham believed the words of God. Abraham's body was dead. God calls him the father of many nations. Changed his name. And that change of name brought about a new status for Abraham. He was not a father before. God called him the father and he believed God and God fulfilled his promise. So that's the point. All of you who have been told that you're not the right sort of person, you who are afraid of coming out of the tomb because you are terrified of being rejected by God, you guilty Romans that Paul is writing to, this is the lesson of Abraham. God calls you righteous and clean, even though you are not. And he makes you what he calls you. God calls you acceptable. God calls you his kind of people. You're welcome by name. By nature, you're not. But you become what he calls you because his promise never fails. That's faith. And this gives us hope because we now know that because of the perfect work of Christ, we're welcome at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're welcome in the presence of God. We're welcome when these bodies are made new and we stand in the presence of the fullness of the glory of God in a form that we can endure, the perfect Lamb of God, our flesh in heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, who became flesh for us and for our salvation and walked among us, glorified at the right hand of God. And when we've come to him, we've come to God. And therefore, we stand in the hope of the glory of God today because that glory will surely be revealed to us. And if those kind of people aren't the right kind of people, then no kind of person is the right kind of person. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The garment of Christ that covers us also covers them if they come to Christ by faith. And God calls us all sons, Jews and Gentiles, us and them. He restores the hope of glory, being justified by faith. And he tells us to come out of the tomb, come out of hiding. And wow, coming out of the tomb is hard because the people of the tomb hate you and revile you and Satan himself wars against you coming out of the tomb. On the journey of life, learning to walk out of the tomb of death, there's many obstacles thrown in your way. Paul calls them tribulations. And he says, when we understand that, then we can glory in those tribulations because we know that it is through tribulations that God makes us the kind of people that he has already called us. 
And so that's a beautiful thing. Everyone coming out of the tomb can then learn to glory in them. The Lord who took me from the mouth of the bear, the Lord who took me from the mouth of the lion, the Lord who took me from that giant, the Lord who took me from that mouth will also take me out of this mouth. And we're going to limp because you always do. We're going to carry the scars until Jesus comes again because we always do. But wounded and broken and bloody will press on because we know there's an end. And at the end of it, there's a table laid before us in the presence of our enemies. At the end is the glory of God and us in transformed bodies wrapped in the arms of our Savior. And Paul Writing under inspiration, God knows us. He knows how hard that is for us. So he reminds us in verses 10 and 11, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If God gave his own son to deliver us while we were filthy, how much more will he bring us through now that we have been cleansed by his blood? Now that we're reconciled with him, is he going to abandon us when he didn't abandon us when we were his enemies? Will he now leave us to rot? Since we're now his sons and daughters, will he leave us to rot in the grave when he saved us while we were his enemies? Of course not. So we trudge on, knowing that he is leading us even through this, one step after another, one day at a time, knowing that this valley will end and the curtain will be pulled back and we shall behold him. And until that day, we're encouraged by the preaching of the word. God meets with us through the proclamation of the gospel. We eat the bread and we drink the wine. We remember our baptism. We remind ourselves and nourish ourselves with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And we take another step. And so on through life, together, until finally complete victory is ours. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, the road is often weary, lonely, and we are often afraid. We pray that you would strengthen us, that you would give us courage and strength for another day, that you would give us today our daily bread and teach us to trust you for tomorrow. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.